The following sermon at Capital Community Church is by Reverend Jim Young. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. You know, when I'm singing those songs, I realize the messages have already been given. We've had a great message already, right? I mean, those songs are so rich, and Jake picks the greatest ones, you know. We could sing in Christ alone over and over and over, right? My wife and I have been fortunate enough to, to have a minimal relationship with the Gettys. We've been with them at some interesting places. and uh, um, So they're a super couple, and and it's amazing uh, over the years the kind of uh, the kind of hymns they've written and the new things we have. Well, I don't really know a whole lot of you, and maybe hardly any of you, except my wife, I think. <laughs> okay, so come up and say hi afterwards. If it's really bad, don't say anything. Just come up and say hi. Introduce yourself. This was really hard. Um, I was asked just last week, but but um, it was just difficult when you think about lying and and um, and stealing, it's like, gosh, I've probably done both of those a lot. And um, now I've got to try to teach on it and preach on it. And it has actually been very convicting. Before we start, I want to pray for our guys that are traveling, um, Grant and, and uh, Kenny and Jim Briggs and Randy, Randy Harrison, yeah, Harrison. and uh, who else? Some, oh, and William Barker. So that's a pretty high contingency of guys here to be on a plane together. But they're flying into Dallas to spend a very short time with Tommy Nelson. And if, and if you have ever heard him, it would be good to Google and listen to him preach. He's great and has a tremendous church. And they're going to be looking at what he's doing there when there, as it relates to, to uh, discipleship. And I'm familiar. I don't know him personally, but I'm familiar with things he's done. So let me pray for us. Father, we first of all pray for the dear men, our leaders, many of them, on that plane flying to Dallas, um, partway there right now. Give them a safe journey, a safe landing, a safe travels when they're there, a great time with uh, Tommy Nelson and his church uh, there in the Dallas area. I pray that they would just be encouraged and strengthened and, and rested and have some great time of conversation on their way and we just uh, ask that you would bless them. And Lord, I pray that tonight you would, uh, you would open my mouth to share some things that would be positive and encouraging. I pray that our folks would here tonight would bear with me and be patient and perhaps even answer some questions to help us roll along tonight. So Lord, guide us through tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I actually made a title um, for the for the evening and titled it differently. I titled it God's Holiness and God's Love. You know, and as we continue tonight with our study of the Ten Commandments, uh, I want to focus a bit on why God gave us the commandments in the first place. And we know uh, from many passages of Scripture and even experientially ourselves that, that God really loves us. And, um, 
a few verses. Psalm 136.2, give thanks to God of to give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. We're familiar with Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure, this is amazing, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jeremiah 31, 3 speaks of God's love as being everlasting. James 4, 8 tells us to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. God invites us, he invites you and me into intimacy with him. But we must never forget, as we draw close to God, the wonder of his holiness and of his power. God has such a passion for us, and therefore, he's not going to let us be less than we can be. Now, think about that. God's passion for us is such that he wants us to be all that we can be. God created us to have gifts. He created us to utilize those gifts. He created us to become everything we can possibly be within the context of who he, who he created us to be. He wants us to learn holiness from him. But he wants us to learn that as we continually experience his love, not in the context of, okay, do this. Like Anyway, we'll look at that a little bit as we look at these idea of commandments. But, you know, as we, as we look at study the Old Testament, we don't, we don't necessarily think of the Old Testament being about how much God loves me. <laughs> we look at the Old Testament, it's like, whoa, you know, there's some pretty tough judgments going on here. But as, um, as Grant shared this morning, there's this scarlet thread of Christ all through it. And as we learn and read the Old Testament, I'm reading through again this year, and, and it's like, it is so great to try to, to try to find Christ in, in what we're reading. And sometimes it's not even, we can't even see that it's there. One commentator I read noted from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10.10, the people of God stay in one place learning how to be God's people. They begin by learning the holiness and power of God. They cannot even touch the mountain, remember? They can't even touch the mountain on which His presence rests. Then he speaks to them about their priorities through the Ten Commandments. But before he gives them the commandments, look at how much he ex- we experience or, or he expresses his love for them. And, and, and again, just in context, I'm going to have you turn to some passages in a few minutes. But in context, in Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God here is showing the steadfastness of his love there in verses, verse 2. And then in verse 6, God is a God who shows steadfast love to a thousand generations, he says, verse 6. And then he says, we see pictures, or we see pictures of his love earlier in the passage. Chapter 19, God says in verse 4, I carried you on weagle, <laughs> weagles, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He says, you will be my treasured possession in verse 5. Our love then should be in response to that love, right? If we understand the depth of that love for us, there should be a desire on our part to express our love back and and to really feel that love back to Him. Have you ever thought of the context of the Ten Commandments being God's love for you? Have you ever thought of those being an expression of His love to me versus my doing those things and expressing love back? 
But they aren't, a, they aren't merely a set of rules. God gives us the commandments as an act of love for us. We then should seek to obey them as an act of our love back to him. As Kenny taught us through the first four commandments, we're, for, we're further along than that, but he covered the first four, and, um, and we saw how we to respond to God's love by loving him. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. Our love is to be exclusive, we saw in Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, respectful in verse 7. It's experienced by setting aside time to be with him. We see that in verse 10 and relating to the Sabbath. And I would suggest that, that today, this would include, in today's days, these times today, uh, it would include spending time worshiping with others in the body of Christ coming together like you are now and with the, with the people, good people that came this morning. So as we continue our study, now finishing the last six commands, and we've done, we've done three of those six, we see they are all about our love for others, our families, verse 12, our husbands and wives, verse 14, our neighbors, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lies about your neighbor, no coveting your neighbor's house or wife, or servant. Jesus summarized it like this in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, with all your, and with all your, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, how Powerful is that. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Some of the thoughts I'm sharing tonight uh, will come from um, the Bible in one year with a man named Nicky Gumbo. I'd never heard of him, but I chose it because I'm helping somebody else read through the Bible this year, and it's Old New Testament, and he gives some really good, good devotionals. But, but he, ends, um, he ends with this relating to the Ten Commandments. He says the Ten Commandments were not given as a ladder that people had to climb up to get into God's presence. Rather, they were a God-given pattern of life for those who had already known God's grace and redemption. They are not given to restrict our freedom, but to safeguard it. They help us enjoy the freedom of living in a relationship with God, showing us how to live a holy life just as God is holy. Our love for God flows out from and as a response to God's love for us. But before we look at Commandments 8 and 9 in Exodus 20, I want you to now turn to your Bibles to, Le to Leviticus chapter 19. And if these commandments have been given to us so that in obeying them, we'll be living a holy life as God is holy, this passage is going to confirm that purpose for us. So follow with me in Leviticus 19, through 18, 1 through 18. This is how it starts. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. If you're going to underline anything, I would, write, I would underline, For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. That's a fifth commandment, right? And you shall keep my Sabbath. That's a fourth commandment. He says, I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. Second commandment, I am the Lord your God. 
When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you, so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the, on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. That says something about, does that say something about leftovers? <laughs> How many days should you wait to eat the leftovers? Ah, oh, that's just, I, that, Kenny does a better job with jokes than I do, but we'll keep working at that. But I couldn't help but think about leftovers when it says, they shall be eaten the same day or up to the third day. Anyway, if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It won't be accepted. Everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned that is what is holy to the Lord. That person shall be cut off from his people. Now, this next two verses, when we talk about being salt and light, we think, well, does that in the New can, can we find that in the Old Testament? Listen to this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And again, I am the Lord your God. So what's he trying to tell us there? Somebody that wants to say something. What's he trying, what, what's he, what can we learn just from that? How can we be salt relating to that passage of Scripture? Of course, we're not all gleaning in our fields and so forth, but, but what could it tell us? Yeah, don't be greedy for sure. But it's beyond not being greedy. There's purpose in this passage, right? The passage actually would say to us, leave something. Don't be greedy. Don't take it all. In whatever you're doing, think about how you can leave something from other, for others. That's not just giving it, I don't think. I mean, that's the idea of leaving something. I mean, it could be that, that uh, ladies, as they're preparing a, a major meal, maybe, it, it's, maybe they already know that there's some other people in the church that could use something, so double it or do something with it. But, but I think that it's interesting to see that, that, that as we are growing to be all that God would have us to be, He wants us to learn how to be looking out for other people, sharing, leaving them something. I mean, I, this is so cool to think about the fact that, that they purposefully aren't supposed to harvest out to the edge. They're supposed to leave something there. Of course, we, we, we've read um, uh, Ruth, you know, we, we see... Um, all that took place there relating to, to, um, to going out into the fields. Then in verse 11, it says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. That's the eighth and the ninth commandments. You shall not steal, neither deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. That's the third commandment. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbors or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Boy, as an employer, what that says to us is when you said you're going to pay your employees, pay them. I have some friends who are, who are, um, who are farming in Mexico and also Peru, and they're growing blueberries and, and, um, and peaches and other things like that. But but there, they have to pay, 
for the wrong for different reasons, but they have to pay their workers every day. Because if they don't pay them every day, if they pay them two or three days at a time, they won't come back to work until they're out of money. So they have to pay them just enough to get them from this day to the next day, and the next day they have to come back to work. That's not what God is telling us here. He's telling us they deserve to be paid, but in a sense it's a good example. Pay your employees when you're supposed to, and don't let them stumble around waiting to get paid for what you told them you would do. And you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. We're going to talk about that a little bit. You shall not be partial in judgment to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer. We're going to talk about that among other people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this is a summation of of, of the whole law. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And then he uses more than one word, but the idea, I think, is love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he ends up again, I am the Lord. So again, as I was preparing to share with you tonight, I remembered a recent article by uh, Dr. Bruce Ashford, uh, and he begins it this way. It's not as if we hadn't been warned. During the middle of the 20th century, the great theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned that Europeans and Americans lived in a world come of age, by which he meant a world in which people had learned to manage life without reference to God. And this experiment in godlessness would not go well, and it's not going well at all. As I interact with people in different settings, the idea of even considering God at all is his perspective on something is completely alien to them. We've talked about that in our life class. Some people, they don't have any idea. And um, these attempted interactions uh, always remind me of what Paul says. And you need to, I want you to open to this passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because many times we get frustrated and we also, we also come up with expectations of people um, that are based on what we already understand about God. And we think they should respond that way too. I mean, why would they not desire to, to share and, and be against abortion and, and uh, be against gambling and the lottery? Why wouldn't they be that way? Well, this says, says, tells us why. Paul says the natural person does what? Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When we talk to people about the things of God, we should not expect them initially to respond to those things like we do. Now, occasionally we might find somebody that's not a believer necessarily as we understand it, and they may have some, a moral compass that would have them do the right thing. But most of the time, most of the time, it just doesn't happen. 
And rather than even considering God and His desires, our culture is systematically encouraging people to follow their own desires. In other words, if I'm a boy and I want to be a girl, I become a girl. I mean, that is absurd. That is beyond comprehension. But the person without God is not going to understand how we see it as absurd. The whole thing with sports and ladies, I mean, I spent a lot of years of my life in, in ministry to athletes, young athletes, and, and we're all excited sometime now with the NC State women's basketball and so forth because we've, we've had the women's basketball team sitting in our house having dinner, not this one, but in the past. And the other day I was thinking, well, if a woman, if a man can choose to be a woman and swim, then why can't a six-foot-five man decide he's a woman and play basketball? Someday, someday, we're probably going to see it. And, and, and anybody, that's, anybody that even has a thought about protecting our ladies and what they're experiencing needs to be all over that somehow, whatever that means. So, so um, when people act that way, uh, and their desires most often conflict with God's desires, and when someone follows these warped desires, it is bad for the individual and bad for our society for sure. You know, for the fast past 22 years prior to, I was in the sports before that, but for the last 22 years I've been involved in ministering to politicians. Um, in 2000, and I forget the year, but anyway, I started a ministry called Capital Commission, and we put pastors, our church supports that ministry, and we put pastors in state capitals for, for the sake of teaching the gospel, to have a presence, uh, to have a prayer witness, and to proclaim the Word of God. We do expositional teaching. Dr. MacArthur and Lawson and Erwin Lutzer, many of those folks are all endorsers of our ministry, a part of what we're doing. We are not there for any political reason whatsoever. We believe that a changed heart will change everything, but only a changed heart will change those things. Let me read something. I just saw this. I showed it to my wife coming over. Um, these are some, uh, a couple quotes from a couple presidents, pretty far back. Listen to what Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant said, My advice to Sunday schools, no matter the denomination, is hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your heart and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book, we are indebted for all the progress made in true civilization. And to this, we must look as our guide in the future. Wow, 18th president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. So great is my veneration for the Bible and so strong my belief that when du duly read and meditated upon, it is of all the books in the world that which contributes most to make men good, wise, and happy. Our sixth president. Some of the other ones are, are really lightweight in comparison to those. But while I've been involved in this ministry, and, and for the last many year, last couple of years, I'm now the president emeritus, so I'm, I'm just kind of hanging around. But, but, but I... I and you may be surprised when I claim that I've been blessed and I've enjoyed almost every part of the ministry. When I get to see God's Word impact people that have that kind of influence and the potential to make that kind of difference, I just say, why would I ever stop doing this? 
I mean, I'll be 80 years old at the end of, end of uh, next month, and, uh, and I'm just going to keep pressing on and doing it because God's Word changes the way people think. And people want to know, well, what are you doing to get this law passed and that law passed? And I have to tell them, I'm not doing anything to get the law passed. I'm doing everything to get the heart changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I guarantee when that changes, you're going to see a change in the way people vote and the things they, they, uh, they pursue and what they want to see happen. Well, as we go on tonight and look at Commandments 8 and 9, I noted something I didn't know. And again, reading Dr. Ashford's article, he points out that the Bible doesn't call these instructions commandments. The Hebrew word is, is for the word words. <laughs> it's rather the ten words. He titled his article, Ten Words for a Broken Society. Now, we know that we use words to express what's on our hearts, what we are thinking, what we believe. We often use them to try to convince someone else to believe what we believe. And God has given us His words, and unlike many of our words, the words God has given us are true, right? Another thought is we consider two of these ten words tonight. Of all that Moses received from God, only these ten words were written with God's hand, remember? With God's finger. Not only that, he had to do it twice. <laughs> remember? Moses, Moses destroyed them the first time. Can you imagine before God he destroys those tablets and, and just destroys them completely? And it was in reaction to Israel's rebellious activities while he was with God on the mountain. But, but these ten words were written by the finger of God. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look at 15 and 16. You don't, it's probably not much to read. It just says, you shall not steal. I thought, I'm going to preach on you shall not steal. Well, when we think about this commandment, we tend to apply it to things, right? Like, like stealing a piece of jewelry or walking out of a CVS with a candy bar in your pocket and then forgetting and having it melt. That ought to happen to you if you ever do that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that. But I can remember as a kid, as a little boy, I can remember, I can remember being in a little uh, card store and candy store and, and uh, slipping some candy into my pocket and being caught at home and having to not only take, go back and pay for it, which meant I had to collect more bottles because you could collect Coke bottles then and they were worth a nickel. If you took your wagon around and you collected enough Coke bottles, you could have... The number of nickels, but I had to use those nickels to pay. And the, the really bad part about it is the store was owned by my aunt who lived with me in my house with my family. <laughs> and all I had to do was ask her for that, and I could have got it without getting in any trouble. But, oh, a sinful little boy, right? But there's so many other ways. Other than just things, there are other ways that, that, that we can experience the idea of stealing. And borrowing again from uh, Bruce Ashford, he notes that God created a world in which individuals have a right to their own body, heart, and possessions. And when any of those things are stolen, it's an abuse of someone's rights. So to steal is to abuse somebody else's rights. And, they have a, and we have a right to that which is on our heart. We have a right to our own bodies, obviously, and we have a right to our own possessions. 
I was trying to think through, um, without us getting into, I guess, the romantic side of things or whatever, how can, how can God, how can somebody else steal from your heart? Any ideas? If you have an idea, jump up to the mic and share it so everybody can hear it, because the people online can't hear unless you do that. Does anybody want to share something? How can somebody steal from your heart? Nobody wants to dare do anything about that. Huh? Well, I think you can think of ways, right? You can think of ways somebody can steal from your heart. They can say something to you to get something, and you take it into your heart, and you believe it, and you give it. It might be even your return of love to somebody that says they love you. It might be for other dastardly reasons that they're lying to you, and, and they touch your heart, and you you end up with a, with a broken heart. Well, so, 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 so in some cases, it's hard to figure that out. Uh, you know, they can steal from your body, obviously, physically, wrongly. I think I've watched in athletics long enough to realize that in some cases there are coaches who steal relating to the body of their athletes. They take them to a place where they hurt them the athlete, because they ask so much of them to make them feel that they're worth being there or that they could start or they could do this. And sometimes those are lifetime, those hurt that young man or woman for a lifetime because they do things during those years they shouldn't do. Gain, you know, I, we did, Tommy and I just, this would be a great movie to watch, especially if you like football a little bit. It was from 2016, but the movie's called Greater. That's just the name of the movie, Greater. It's a story about a young man that played at the University of Arkansas. And anyway, it's on Netflix. It's, it's healthy. It's really interesting to watch how his walk with God brought so many guys into a, into a, a room to have Bible study. And it reminded me of, of my days doing ministry with athletes and having dorm rooms full of big guys, little guys, but guys and gals who wanted to study the Bible together. Anyway, the movie's called Greater. Well, Grant had an original plan to preach on this Eighth Commandment last Sunday, and knowing I would be doing it tonight, he gave me his notes, written notes. He's going to laugh because I'm going to tell him I can hardly understand a whole lot of them, but, but um, I noticed in his notes that he referenced G. Campbell Morgan, and Dr. Morgan was a British evangelist, preacher, leader of Bible, leading Bible teacher, and, and a very prolific author. Um, also, I think he was a doctor of dentistry. So I looked up his commentary on the Ten Commandments. This was just awesome. And uh, he was teaching about this age commandment, and he, he dealt with it more as things. And uh, you shall not steal. So he grouped it with commandments, commandment 9 and 10, and mentioned that these were of lesser importance than the others. 8, 9, and 10 were of lesser importance than the others. And I thought, what in the world can that mean? This seems strange until he explained that the first seven commandments have forbidden sins which interfere with a relationship of man to God or harm in some way the life of a man himself. He noted in the Mosaic economy, violation of any of the first seven commandments incur the death penalty, but not the last three. This was, not so, this was not so with regard to the last three. They, they, they didn't incur the death penalty. 
So that proves that in the realm of comparison, the first seven are of greater importance. But to the mind of God, worship and the relation of the worshiper to himself is of supreme importance, whether it's the first, second, or the ninth and tenth, or you know, whatever commandment. He expressed that for stealing to occur, there must be something to be stolen that was obtained by somebody's toil. In other words, whatever somebody does in their job or however they earn a living or whatever, they then own something. And so they, then they, then they um, if it's taken away from them, it's taken away from them without toil. So if I steal something from somebody, I didn't toil to get what they toiled to get, which makes that very bad. Um, so it's equivalent to, to um, uh, anyway, there's no equivalent to it, he says. Consider what Paul wrote to Ephesians, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, the idea of toiling, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, so we see the situation where he's, he's using the example here is don't, you know, stop stealing. Go to work. Whatever you need, work for it, because somebody you're taking it from has worked for it. So that's good to understand that, I think. Um, as, we, as, we, um, as I was thinking about these, there was one illustration. Can you, can you think of an illustration in the New Testament that talks about God's severe uh, ups? He gets severely upset about the idea of stealing and of, um, of, of dealing falsely. What would that example be? Book of Acts. Who can you think of that deceived and stole? Ananias and Sapphira. So look at your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. I thought... What a good example of somebody thinking they were going to get away with something. And it didn't quite work out that way. Beginning of verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what did he do first? What did they do first? They told the other folks that this, that, that this whole thing was a part of. They told them they were going to sell this land and give it all to the, to the church or to, to, this, to the group that, that needed it here, right? And Peter says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. There's the idea of the greed, right? They not only didn't leave anything over, they, they, they harvested and then kept some of the profits from the harvest. Now, now in, in fact, there would be nothing wrong with that if it wasn't already told by them that they were giving it all. So there was self-deception, there was lying. So what happens? It says, um, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, who is, why is Satan, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you owned all this before you sold it. 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You had the right to give it away, and you said you were going to give it all. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Well, the reality is he did lie to man, I think, uh, because he told them, apparently, that they were going to get it all, or at least in his heart he, he insinuated that somewhere along the line. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That was a quick judgment, wasn't it? And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Um, Sapphira must not have heard that quite yet. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So they connived together to pull this off. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. So she lied as to how much she sold it for. She must have told him that she sold it for the amount they gave. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, I would think. <laughs> Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. How many people do you think went running back and got the balance of what they said they were going to give? <laughs> and they added it to what they were going to do, and they gave it quickly. Things were not going to go well for them if they didn't give everything they said. So... So, so as we continue, the ninth commandment now, the idea of, not, or of bearing false witness, this one gets really hairy and convicting. I'm going to go quickly. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, starting at verse 4. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth came blessings and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brother. You remember now this commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He says, James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who spoke, the one who speaks against a brother or judge his, or, the one who speaks against a brother or judge his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I was going to ask the question, what do you think the simple intention of this command is? And um, when we think about it a little bit, the commandment to not bear false witness, again, I can go back to G. Campbell Morgan. He states, the intercourse of men with each other is to depend upon actual facts of character, conduct, and capability. He goes on to say that no man must be helped or harmed by statements. Now, listen to this. No man may be helped or harmed by statements made concerning him, which are not exactly in accordance with the facts as far as they are known. So how is, the comment, how is this commandment violated? First of all, it's violated by, by way of evidence given in the court of justice. Priyant mentioned this morning the idea of witnesses and testimonies and and, um, and, and in court, you have to have two witnesses to confirm, you know, a particular deed. Um, so, so if you do not speak the truth relating to a court hearing, and it relates to the evidence that's being brought, then you are in violation of this commandment. Justice is based on truth, and any false testimony born is a violation of truth, and it produces, what, a miscarriage of justice. And then there's the idea of slander, and this one really is convicting. I mean, I, I realized, you know, a slander is a lie distributed with malicious intention. Now, I don't think that, that every time, let me use my, myself as an example, I don't think every time I've said something negative about something, somebody else that, it, that my purpose was malicious. But I think we can all sit here and realize there's been some time, maybe even recently, when we've said something about somebody else, maybe a family member, maybe a politician, maybe a, 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 a member of the church with us. We've said something that was, we weren't really sure it was true. Whatever it was, maybe it was true, but the way we said it made it appear to be bad, made it appear to be something that wasn't good. A slander invents a lie, and he uses it. Now, that's, that's the extreme side. It's a weapon that takes away a reputation, okay? All the chances are against its ever being regained. That reputation has been taken away because somebody lied about them. There's somewhere out there that somebody continues to believe that even after it's, believed to, even after it's been proved to be true. There are still those who think, well, I heard that that wasn't really the case, but I know what people are like, and he probably really did do that, or she did that, or said that. So, so because it's probably never going to be regained completely, oftentimes it causes untold and prolonged suffering to the innocent, while the majority of cases, <laughs> he himself, who said it, goes completely undiscovered and maybe even unpunished. False witness is also born when a false impression is made upon the minds of certain persons about others. <laughs> Think about that. By a hint, a suggestion, or even the clever asking of a question can cause that person to be seen in a different light than they should be seen in. Consider also that a false witness may be born of silence. Supposing there are three people involved in a discussion and one person says something to the other person, which the third person knows is not true, 
or is slanderous, but what if that third person doesn't say anything? So now, so now he's bearing false witness by not speaking because he stays silent. So it can be born even in the midst of silence. The third, maiden, the third man knows the statement to be untrue for some personal reason or dislike or maybe fear remains silent. That person is as guilty of the breach of the law as the one uttering the untruth. I think there's also times when when this idea of, of bearing false witness has a motive behind it. And I think that would have to be evaluated every time. What is my motive for not telling the truth? It can never be a good motive. It can always be either personal or because I want to get something. And then I hadn't thought about this one before, but one of the notes I read talked about flattery. Flattery is also bearing false witness because I, when I to say something to another man or a woman concerning him or her, um, things that aren't true or are not believed to be true, which indeed are known to be untrue, simply for the sake of pleasing them and and paying tribute to their vanity, is to is to is to perjure the soul. In the same way, to other unwarranted praise, to give a testimonial about character or to recommend a man or woman simply out of friendship for them, while he is known to be unworthy of the testimony born, is to inflict injury upon the person to whom he's recommending. I'll tell you what, in the political arena, it is absolutely bizarre. You know, I, think, I hear things said both on the negative and the positive, and I know in many cases neither of them are true because I know the people. Now, if they're, if they're, if they're gratuitous and if they're if it, it makes them look better, then they jump all over it. If they think, it is, if they think it's um, going to make them look not so good, even if it's true, then they're all there trying to defend themselves against it. But the reality is we can say things to butter people up. You could come up and tell me that was a great message tonight, Jim, but in your heart you're known that wasn't that great. So I won't hear from anybody now that that's Okay. <laughs> But, 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 you know, we can do those things. We can flatter when we can't. Listen to this. Uh, I find this little uh, poem. I guess it's a poem or a thought. It says, A whisper broke the air, a soft, light tone, and low, yet the barbed with shame and woe. Now might it only perish there, nor further go. Ah, me, a quick and eager ear, the little meaning sound. Another voice has briefed it clear, and so it wandered around. From ear to lip, from lip to ear, until it reached a gentle heart, and that it broke. Hmm, isn't that something? It got to the heart of the person who was spoken about, and the heart was broken. Every violation of truth is a description, a, dis- a desecration of the Decalogue of our ten words. And there is no meaner form of rebellion against God than harming one's fellow men and creating impressions which are not true in the minds of others. Campbell quotes Shakespeare. Listen to this one. Who speaks my purse steals trash. Who, I mean, who steals my purse steals trash. But he that filches from my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. So when I speak of someone else and defame their name, 
they're defamed and I gain nothing from it. Why would I do that? Because I'm a sinner, right? So what's the corrective to all of this? Well, first of all, Jesus is the embodiment of truth and incarnate love, and truth will reign when the motive is love because love ever expresses itself in truth, right? 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? The passage we looked at, and that verse ends with this, For we have the mind of Christ. If we leave here tonight thinking through the ways in which perhaps we've used our words and tongue and, and thoughts and things we might put. And I, I know the media, social media situation is just disastrous because, first of all, you can't get it back. It's out there. It's gone. And I've, things, I've seen things written, especially in the political arena, not just there. I mean, there's so many things put out there that aren't true, and you can't get them back. And uh, we've got some grandkids and and uh, they're big on, the, on getting online. And, and I'm not saying there's bad things going on, but, but they need to realize that what they put out there stays forever. And uh, they'll never get it back. And if there's an employee eventually going to, employer going to hire them, they're going to see the things they said. And, and there's no way they're going to hire somebody that said something like that. We have the mind of Christ. So folks, um, tonight as you think about these things, and you begin to say something, remember the power of the tongue is, is, um, is, is there for, for a positive reason, but also for a negative. Be careful what you say, who you say it to, and, and do it all, realizing that God wants you to be all that you can be, and uh, he wants you to be in love with him who is a holy and powerful God who wants to change our lives and, and allow us to make a difference in the lives of everyone around us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you that you can bring it to our hearts. We pray that there would be no words spoken for the rest of our lives here on earth that would break anybody else's heart. Help us to be wise. Help us to, to think through and pray through anything we might say, especially anything that we might write. Lord, I pray that uh, your purposes would be fulfilled in our lives, that we could become all that you desire us to be. We really do love you, and we love your word, and we're grateful that you share it with us and that there's other men who wrote things that are profound and, and understood in ways that sometimes we can't quite get a hold of. So again, we're grateful. We're grateful for Capital Community Church. I'm grateful for all the folks who are here today, tonight. Again, safety for our men and the leaders and their families that are home without them. So bless this evening. Give us a good night's rest and a week ahead of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.